0: Genesis chapter 1 this morning, we are continuing in our study of the Apostles' Creed that we began last week. First study of its kind that I've ever done. For some of you, this will be new ground. For others, it'll be kind of reinformation or reacquainting yourself with the fundamentals of the faith. And today, we go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1:1, And I think it's an appropriate place in our series to go back to the beginning, back <clears throat> to the origins of the universe. The origins of the world, indeed the the origins of life itself, because it's in our understanding of our origins, who we are and where we've come from, our understanding about beginnings, that in fact we learn some critically important things about who God is. It's often been said that the root of all of our faith is the Bible. The root of our faith is not the Apostles' Creed. The root of our faith is the Holy Word of God. And it's often been said that if the root of our faith is the Bible, then the root of the Bible has to be the book of Genesis, the very beginning. We have to understand that. I've said before, if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you'll never be able to properly interpret the rest of the Bible. Well, if it's true that the root of our faith is the Bible and the root of the Bible is the book of Genesis, it stands to reason that the root of Genesis is the very first verse in the book of Genesis. You know it as well as I do. It may well be the most known verse in all of the Bible, even lost people who don't know anything about the Bible. Know how it begins, generally speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is indeed where it all begins, where our understanding of life begins, but also where our understanding of things like theology, humanity, Eternity itself, this is where it all begins. If Genesis 1-1 is not in the Bible, nothing else that is in the Bible will make any logical sense whatsoever. Uh, That's why all the Bible's best-known passages, the most significant verse in many ways may be the Bible's very first verse. Would you say it together with me out loud together? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last week, we began a series of messages that's designed to reacquaint us with the basic fabric of our faith, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I hope you'll consider inviting someone that's a friend or a family member who may not know the Lord to join you in this series because we're kind of unpacking what Christianity at its heart is really all about. What are the critical aspects of our faith that have tended to tie us together, to unite us over the 2,000-year history of the church? What are the critical boundaries of our faith for believers today? To help us better understand those things, we're using as our general framework um, what's known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, last week, we spent a few minutes talking about creeds in general and what they are and why they can be helpful. I'm not going to retread that ground again this morning completely, So if you missed last Sunday, you may want to go online and pull up the archive and listen to it. But basically, a creed is simply a statement of faith. That's really all it is. It's a simple statement of faith, a summary of basic uh, Christian beliefs. Creeds kind of focus us on the critical stuff. As I said last week, it's kind of Christianity for dummies. If you don't understand what Christianity is all about, creeds can help you kind of get your arms around it as you begin a journey through the major theological tenets of the Bible. Uh, What are the major things about our faith? What is it that holds us together as Christian people? I said last week that the Apostles' Creed isn't the only historic Christian creed. There are three really big ones. The Apostles' Creed, which is the shortest and the oldest, which makes it the most popular. Then there's the Nicene Creed that came about 150 or 200 years later. And then around 500 A.D., the Athanasian Creed was finalized by the Council of Chalcedon. And the fact of the matter is, as each uh, creed was written, it was usually written to address some form of false teaching that was pervading the church. And that's kind of why we have creeds because people haven't always in the church kept to the pure historic apostolic teaching that was found in the first century church. And so creeds were a way of kind of addressing some uh, era that was being taught and kind of bring people back to where they needed to be in terms of what they should believe and what was taught by the early church. The Apostles' Creed is surely the most popular. It's been around for 1,800 years, used by churches, uh, even to this very day. And it was in the video. You should be able to memorize it. I hope many of you will memorize it together with me because we're sure to use it again as we go forward into our future. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. This is what we believe. And all God's people said, amen. Now, we begin our study of the Christian faith where the creed itself begins. And that, of course, is with the first person of the triune God that we worship. If you noticed carefully, all three persons of the Godhead are carefully mentioned in the creed. God is Father, God is Son, Christ the Son, and God is Holy Spirit. And uh, we begin with God the Father where we started last week. And again, to quote Tozier, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is where a Christian worldview begins as opposed to a secular worldview. A Christian worldview begins with that expression, I believe in God. I believe God is, unlike a secular worldview, which is humanist. I believe in matter. I believe in me. That's what a secularist would say. But a Christian always begins with the beginning in mind. And that is with a firm belief that God is human real and that God is personal and that God is knowable. And last week we discovered there are ways that everybody can know that God is. You may not be able through these three ways to understand everything that you need to know about God, but everybody can know that at least God exists through Scripture, through the revelation of God in Word, in terms of what God has given us. God leaps off the page in every page of the Bible from Genesis all the way to To revelation. We can know God exists through scripture. We can know God exists, secondly, through conscience. God has given all of us a conscience. What Paul called the law of God written on our hearts. And it's why all men stand before God without excuse because we're created in the image of God to know God. And it's why many lost people can know to do good things. It's how we distinguish what is right and what is wrong. And even lost people can do good and moral and honest types of things and then we can know God thirdly through what God has made around us through what God has revealed before us through what God has planted inside of us and through what God has shown around us we can know God through creation look at Psalm 19:1. the heavens what declare the glory of God the skies what proclaim the work of his hands. Can I just say this morning, those who deny God, deny God not because they lack evidence, but because Paul, as Paul says in Romans 1, they choose to deny God. To use his language, people choose to suppress the truth. In other words, the truth is all around us in Scripture, in conscience, in creation. And yet when we don't want to know God, We conveniently take that truth as revealed by God and we stuff it back in the box. We suppress the truth. We willingly choose to close our eyes to the revelation of God in Scripture, conscience, and creation. Theologian Wayne Grudem uh, tells a story of being in a carpool with a group of different friends many years ago. The car was full of people. They were on their way to work. Not all of them, I think, worked at the same place. It was a cold, icy, wintry day where they lived a number of years ago, and as they drove, they were having a discussion in the car about human beings and where human beings came from. And one of the subjects came up is that everybody has this inner awareness of God through conscience. And there was a young woman in the car who just totally denied that. She said, I don't believe that. I don't have any inner awareness of Of God, and while they were still having the conversation, the driver of the car hit some black ice and the car began to spin violently out of control 360 degrees a couple of times before it went off the road. Landed harmlessly in a snowbank. Car really wasn't damaged, nobody was hurt. But what was interesting is that as that car was spinning around and nobody knew what was happening, that woman who denied that she had any awareness of God, was screaming over and over, oh God, oh God, oh God. And Dr. Gruden said when the car stopped, there was this long silence in the car and it wasn't because people were concerned about the car when they determined everybody was okay. All eyes turned to her. Because like you just said, Oh, well, that doesn't make any difference. No, 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 it's amazing how when things get bad enough, all of us will tend to call on the powerful name of Almighty God. In the Apostles' Creed, not to get lost between the word Father and the word Creator is the word Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We've already established that God is a personal God. He is a father God. He's transcendent, far removed from everything that he's made, but he's also eminent. He's close. He comes near. He wants to have a relationship with the people that he's made. So he's a father God. And uh, he can become our father God through faith. But the creed also makes it clear that God is an almighty and omnipotent God who created the heavens and the earth and everything they contain. Now, I want you to notice the critical use of the word creator. The older versions of the creed uses, use the word maker, and I'm not crazy about that word. Because here's the thing, human beings make things. God creates things. Whenever you use words like make or fashion, it always implies that you form something from preexistent materials. So if I'm going to make a chair, I get some glue, I get some wood, things of that nature. If I'm going to build a house or a commercial building, I might get some steel, and I might get some hammers and nails and other tools. In other words, you get pre preexistent materials to make stuff or to fashion stuff or to mold stuff. But the word that's used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is the, is the Hebrew bara, which doesn't mean to make. There's a different word for that. It means to create. And in Latin, the theologians use the word ex nihilo, and that's how God creates. Out of nothing, with no preexistent material whatsoever, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of absolutely nothing, with the aid of no preexistent material whatsoever. I love what the Bible says in Hebrews 11:3: 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen, watch this, was not made out of things that are what? Visible. That's, just, that's tucked away in Hebrews. Most Christians don't even know it's there. You need to write that in the margin of your Bible aside from Genesis 1-1. Because those two verses, Genesis 1-1 and Hebrews eleven three, 3 need to be taken together as a tandem. God's divine power, man, it's so great that he made the universe and this world by simply opening up his mouth and making a decree. And God said, and there was. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created them, male and female. He created them. I don't know how people don't, instinctively grasp and understand the simplicity of those statements. Have you ever noticed how we tend to overcomplicate things all day long? I was at a conference several years ago staying at a downtown hotel, Houston, Texas, and I woke up one morning exhausted from the previous evening of travel and Judy was sleeping. The conference didn't get started till mid-morning. and I woke up and I wanted to good cup of coffee, not that trash they serve in the room. I didn't want any of that. And I remembered as we were driving in the previous night, we passed a Starbucks right down the street. We didn't make any turns, so I thought, okay, it's right down the street from the hotel. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to walk down there, and I'm going to get a couple of big Starbucks, bring it back for Mama. And I started to walk, thinking it was maybe a block, block and a half down the road. Twenty minutes later, I was still walking. And that Texas sun was coming up over the horizon, and it was a little muggy and a little humid, and I kept walking, and then I came to the the next block, and the sidewalk was blocked off because of construction, which meant I had to take a hard right, go down and around, adding the distance. By the time I got there, I had been walking about 25 minutes. And then, of course, because of the delay, the line was backed up to the door, and I thought, well, I'm too invested in this deal. I'm staying, and I'm buying coffee. And so I did, and getting through the line, then coming back, and then I'm walking back with these two large coffees, praying there's a microwave in the room, because by the time I get back, I'm going to have to nuke these things to get them hot again. And you'll never guess what happened. I walked into the cool lobby of my hotel, started walking right toward the elevators from whence I had come, and I looked off to the right, and there's a Starbucks counter (laughs) right there. I mean, I came off of the elevators right over there, and man, I was focused <laughs> out the door. Ten paces off the elevators, and I went through all that mess, all that rigmarole. Have y'all ever noticed that's the way a lot of people approach creation? <laughs> way out of the way, highly complicated, all over the world, caught up in these complicated explanations about Who we are where we came from, the origins of life, when the main thing really isn't all that complicated. In fact, it's as simple as the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, today, more than ever, our culture and our world, man, I'm telling you, there's a culture battle. It's been going on forever, decades. Two competing polar opposite worldviews. There are two general worldviews about life, a Christian biblical worldview, and a secular humanist worldview, but then underneath those rubrics concerning creation, there are two creative worldviews. The first, of course, as most of you know, is intelligent design. And intelligent design just teaches that there is an eternal preexistent God. God is eternal. God preexists everything else. And God spoke and from nothing created everything that is. That's intelligent design, just that simple. The second is what we call naturalism. Naturalism. Now, naturalism is what your kids uh, are generally taught in in schools and in colleges and universities. It's what you get when you turn on the television and watch a program about nature or about astronomy or whatever the case might be, whether it be on Animal Planet or Nat Geo or the Discovery Channel or even PBS. Almost always naturalism is taught with no competing uh, alternative taught is absolute fact. And naturalism is just kind of chaotic. It proposes that the universe began by random chance, happenstance, totally accidental. There was pre existing chaos. In fact, in the mind of the naturalist, the only thing that's eternal is matter. And there's no rhyme nor reason. So before there was a beginning, there was this pre existent matter. And from nothing more than this accidental convergence, of matter coming together in a random kind of way. There was a big bang that occurred billions and billions of years ago, and it created what we now know as the universe. And from that big bang, two things began to happen. I call it the two E's of naturalism, emergence and evolution. From that big bang, the naturalist says, the universe began to emerge. and They would argue that the universe is still emerging today, billions and billions of years later, and then after a period of time, life as it was on earth began to evolve, and again, over periods of billions of years, we've ended up where we are today with these highly evolved species known as Homo sapiens. Now, can I just say this morning, I love science. I'm not a scientist, and so I'm not teaching science, And the Bible's not a science textbook, but can I say, because it's the inerrant, infallible word of the living God, if the Bible speaks to a matter of science, I believe we can trust it. I love science. I'm all about it. I'm fascinated by science. Nobody's afraid of of science, but we have to be honest and we have to admit that science and scientific theory has constantly changed for centuries and centuries. I mean, the world used to be flat. That was scientific theory. Until Copernicus and some others were out on a shoreline, you know, and they'd see a ship going off the horizon. And they'd say, okay, they're goners. <laughs> but then it occurred to them, well, wait a minute, there's one coming up over the horizon. How'd he fly back into the water, you know? And that's how the whole theory of the world being spherical came into being. I mean, science constantly changes. And what's true today wasn't true 20 years ago and wasn't true 20 years before that and wasn't true 20 years before that. And so there's a kind of an evolving thing when it comes to science. And that's what makes naturalism just as much a faith-based worldview as what we believe about the beginning of creation and about life itself. And that's becoming, by the way, although still a small percentage, that's becoming the opinion of many in the scientific community. Uh... And you have to understand, too, that many in the scientific community openly acknowledge that what they believe about naturalism is indeed faith-based and can't be proven. I love this statement that comes in a book review that was published in January several years ago of uh, Richard Lewontin, who's a very famous Harvard molecular biologist. He's also an atheist and a Marxist, and he writes this, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so theories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, what y'all say about that? I mean, the, the, the intellectual dishonesty of a statement like that is just palpable. I mean, it's just obvious. Richard Dawkins, who passed away just several months ago, who was a hero to so many in the naturalistic world, said the same thing. Even if no actual evidence exists in favor of Darwinism, we would still be justified in preferring it over rival views <laughs> really that's just totally intellectually dishonest at worst and at best it just indicates that what they believe is just as much based on faith as what anybody else believe so that's what you call blind faith and the intellectual dishonesty of that Man, it's overwhelming. It doesn't matter in the minds of those kind of people. It doesn't matter where the evidence might lead. It doesn't matter what seems to be logical or what seems to be rational. We will not believe in an intelligent designer because we cannot even allow that as a possibility. We're paying a terrible price for it and have socially, morally, legally, spiritually in this country and around the world. And you know why that's true? Because if there's no morality, listen, there is no morality associated with being an accidental child of the cosmos. How are you going to encourage moral behavior, ethical living, if we're all just here by accidental happenstance? I was in the bookstore the other day and I noticed a book on display just last week, written by a Columbia University physicist named Brian Green. It was right in the middle of the new release section, right there in the front of the store. And it had one of those notes recommending it from one of the employees of the bookstore. The title of the book was, uh, Until the End of Time. But it was the subtitle of the book that really captured my attention. The subtitle of the book, Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. And I thought, well, now this is interesting because I don't think you can find meaning if you're here by accident. So I was interested in what the Columbia physicist said about finding meaning and purpose in a world where there apparently is no meaning and purpose because it all just happened for no rhyme the reason. And I picked up that book. It's a big, thick book. And I'm telling you, it's heavy duty, heavy, heavy, heavy. I've been a real page-turner, amen? And so I thought, well, I was wondering what his conclusions are. And so I went to the last chapter of the book. And then I went to the last paragraph of the last chapter in the book. And here's what I read on the last paragraph of the last chapter of this 500-plus page book about finding purpose and meaning in a random universe. He says this, as we hurtle toward a cold and barren cosmos. I'm all warm and tingling now, aren't you? (laughs) As we hurtle toward a cold and barren cosmos, we must accept that there is no grand design. Particles are not endowed with purpose. I do agree with that. The only direction is to look where? Inward. And turn to the highly personal journey of constructing our own meaning. See, that's the very definition of a secular worldview. Only thing that matters is matter in me, right? So now I look within and I make up for myself who I am and why I'm here and what truth is and why I matter. This is the way that the book of Judges ends, brothers and sisters. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When you don't have a king, you have chaos. And that's happened in our world because of this kind of naturalistic philosophy. I mean, what he says is just another way of saying there is no objective meaning to life. Everything here by chance, and because everything's here uh, by chance, you determine why you're here, even if that can be defined at all. And you'll notice if you're like me, when you watch television, one of the most popular phrases of the last two or three years has been the phrase, my truth. My truth. You determine your truth, I determine my truth. I didn't know your truth or mine. I mean, either it's truth or it's not truth. Either it's objective truth, it is true now, it has been true and it will always be true, or it's not true. There is no your truth or my truth. And that's a huge distinction between intelligent design and naturalistic philosophy. I mean, what a message for people to hear. That you're nothing more than a cosmic accident? Man, I'm telling you, if you're a cosmic accident, you don't matter. You just don't matter. And whenever you tell people long enough that they're nothing more than an accidental animal, no different than any other animal that's ever been made, pretty soon they're going to start believing it. And when you start believing you're no different from an animal, guess what? won't be long you'll start acting like an animal. That's why we're in a mess. Because when God loses preeminence, humanity loses significance. But not every scientist hangs his hat on the door of naturalism. There are a small percentage that have moved away from that. Sir Francis Bacon said one time, a little bit of science distances a man from God. But a lot of science ends up bringing him back. And you're seeing some of that happen in a small sliver of the scientific community. Many scientists have moved away from evolution as a way to explain how life began. And that's because there's this huge missing link with evolution, you know, because listen, and I, I'm i fine with certain kinds of evolution. We call it microevolution. There are lots of varieties of horses and lots of varieties of dogs and lots of varieties of cats and Dogs have evolved into greater, higher species of dogs over the years, and cats have done the same, and birds have done the same. But here's the thing. We don't buy into what's called macroevolution or evolution across species. A rose is a rose is a rose, but a rose is not a banana, and a rose will never become a banana. And if it did, there ought to be a lot of fossil records of roses almost becoming bananas so you have this beautiful rose fossilized, and it's got a little banana shoot coming out of it. We don't got them. Marvelous, intelligent paleontologists have admitted that through the years, Stephen Jay Gould being the foremost among them. Yeah, it's a, it's a deal. We don't have transitional forms in the fossil record. But so what? Well, big what to me. Because you'd have all these transitional forms, almost creatures kind of in the process of morphing. But they're not there. And that presents a problem. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, everything produced after its own kind. You read the first chapter of the book of Genesis, that phrase is in there 10 times. According to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. Let me tell you one of the great evidences that God is behind creation. And it's called DNA. I'm telling you, the DNA sequencing is the most radical discovery of the last hundred years. No question about that. Maybe the most significant creative discovery of all time. DNA is the language code that's embedded inside of every cell. And by the way, Charles Darwin didn't know anything about DNA. He didn't, he wasn't schooled in molecular biology. None of that stuff existed. He he knew nothing virtually about the intricacies of the human cell. Did you know that in one human cell, there's more information in one human cell? You can't even see them with the naked eye. More information in one human cell than in the entire Encyclopedia Britannica multiplied by a factor of four or five. That's in one human cell. And DNA is right at the heart of that. The DNA sequencing, man, it's so precise that there's no way can be explained as having happened randomly and by happenstance. I mean, that would be like you walking on the beach this afternoon, now that you've got all that extra daylight at the end of the day, and, and you pass by this enormous sandcastle on the beach. I mean, it's got all the turrets, and it's got the, you know, fancy dolphins at the front of the front gate, It's got all the bells and whistles and you looking down at that and saying, man, isn't it amazing what the ocean can do when it beats against the beach enough times? (laughs) You walk down a little farther and you see etched in the sand, Jim, Hearts, Judy with an even bigger heart drawn around it. Man, this beach is amazing. I wonder how many billions of years it took for the beach to do that or going to Mount Rushmore and gazing up at Mount Rushmore and saying, isn't it amazing what the wind and the rain can do over two and a half billion years? Now, can I just say this morning, there was like a master designer that sculpted that thing. And there was somebody that built that sandcastle. And there was some lover that wrote Jim Loves Judy. I don't know who it was, but he was a Casanova, no doubt about it. (laughs) Now, somebody did that on purpose. Can I say this morning, natural forces can't write a book. Natural forces can't write an orchestral symphony. I was in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. Y'all pray for my hometown. Mama's doing okay. That tornado, the path of that tornado was 150 yards behind my mother's house. It went right between my mother's house and my brother's house to the north. No damage. We're so grateful. But the two neighborhoods north of her obliterated. And I was there the week before that. My timing was good that time. And I took Mama to the Nashville Symphony. Beethoven's 250th anniversary is this year. And I took Mama to the Nashville Symphony for an all-Beethoven concert on Sunday afternoon. And they played played a piano concerto. And they played the great heroic symphony, the Eroica, dedicated originally to Napoleon magnificent. Between the piano concerto and the, and the symphony, there was an intermission. And my mother, who is a musician, pianist, looked at me and she said, did, did Beethoven write the music for every single instrument? I said, every one. And then he somehow pieced all of that together. I said, Mama, the wind didn't blow it together. I know that. He wrote it all. And then he put it all together. And we're listening to the beauty of the outcome of that. Let me tell you, what's true for all of that is true for you this morning. It's true for your life. You're not an accidental animal. You're not here by happen chance. I'm telling you all, somebody made you. Somebody made you on purpose. Somebody designed you with a purpose, for a purpose, to a greater mission beyond yourself. When it comes to DNA, I'm just saying somebody had to write that code. That stuff doesn't just happen. And the Bible makes that clear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and creator of me. I don't know all the details about how he did it, and you don't either. But the world and the universe testify to the master designer who stands behind every bit of it. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, the earth is the Lord in all its fullness, the world and all who dwell therein, in the beginning that had no beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the most important thing God ever made is you he made you on purpose he designed you for a purpose to draw you into an eternal relationship with himself that you might know creator God as father God something that takes place not by anything you can do to outdo God but only through what God and his creative power has done for you through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself on the cross for you. Brothers and sisters, if you miss this, nothing else in the Bible and nothing else about life will ever make sense. I believe in God, the creator. This is the word of God. Let all who agree with it say amen this morning.